Bruce Bochy won three World Series titles between 2010 and 2014 as manager for the San Francisco Giants. And Dave Doc Roberts is the manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He has led the team to win the National League West every year since he took over the position in 2015. Today, they will discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic and the heated debate over racial justice have affected Major League Sports, specifically baseball. Let's listen in. So I, I want to welcome everybody. We have two, two folks I'm really pleased to have on the call today. Bruce Bochy. Um, Bochy is best known for um, the amazing feat of winning three World Series in a five-year period for the, uh, for the San Francisco Giants in 2010, 12, and 14. Here in San Diego, we love him because he bought the Padres to the World Series in 1998. We also have Dave Roberts, better known as Doc, uh, as Doc Roberts, who manages the Dodgers, LA Dodgers. Since Doc arrived in LA four years ago, the, uh, the Dodgers have won the National League West every one of those years, much to the chagrin of those of us in San Diego. Um, he managed the Dodgers in, in two World Series in 17 and 18. Uh, in 17, he played the Astros, so there may be some interesting conversation. Some folks from Houston, there's a lot of Houston folks on this call, so those of us who are baseball fans are pretty aware, pretty aware of the uh, sign-stealing scandal that kind of started that year. I do want to give a quick shout-out to Glenn Doshay, who's on. If it wasn't for Glenn, I wouldn't have the opportunity to meet these guys. Um, Glenn's an enormous supporter of baseball and probably knows more about it than anybody in the world. Um, Anyway, Bruce and Doc are going to talk a bit about how the pandemic has affected Major League Sports and especially baseball. Given recent events, they may touch on, on how racism, um, racial issues are, are impacting sports and the role athletes ought to play. And if anybody wants to ask uh, Doc, maybe he'll talk a bit about sign stealing um, so, uh, or scandals or, or, or history. But uh, did we find Boach or uh, is he on? All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna let Dave start, and I'm gonna uh, email him, make sure he knows how to get on. All right, guys. Um, as as Larry said, um, I, I managed the Dodgers. I played for ten years in the big leagues, and uh, first and foremost, uh, you know, Nancy, your team, uh, you guys all do such great work. And uh, once we got this uh, set up, I, I did a little little research and. Um, you know, there's no better time for uh, groups like you guys to come together um, for a greater purpose. And you guys have obviously been way ahead of it. Uh, but for me in particular, uh, baseball with the pandemic has been um, interesting. I, I think that just speaking to baseball where I'm always kind of an opportunist, opportunist and look for opportunities. And that's something I try to um, talk to my players about. Uh, every day and, and these are guys that are don't know what to do without baseball um, and it's with with athletes in baseball it's interesting where you know you can have a schedule of 162 games and look out and play for eight months of the season uh, and it's not a big deal and you can get through the grind but the unknown where we're at right now there's no start no stop um, in sight uh, there's a lot of noise in the media. You've got two uh, groups that can't come to a consensus. So I think that you guys are very well aware of that situation, that dynamic. So uh, for me, who's been on both sides of it, as far as a player and the players union, 
you know, the other side of now being a manager kind of on the major league baseball side of things, it's interesting trying to understand the most important things um, outside of baseball. And that's what I'm trying to get our guys. And, and I'm on a couple of committees for major league baseball, trying to get everyone to understand as well. Um, again, I just really appreciate this opportunity because, you know, being in baseball is something that I've known I've done for so long and, and managing people and being a part of a $2 billion industry, um, you know, managing players, coaches, the media managing up, uh, but really understanding how you can get two sides to kind of come together to a consensus for the greater good. And for me, I'm a passionate fan of sports and baseball in particular. Um, so I, I have a lot of different insights and, and I would love to kind of get the dialogue going and feel free, obviously, in, a, in the happenings of this last 10 days, there's a lot of things that are sensitive, but um, for me, I'm open to share my thoughts. I'm on that, um, to the Astros scandal, to yeah. everything in between. We can go as deep or as light as you guys would prefer. So look, folks, if you have questions, let's see. Um, if you have a question, um, let me know, put it in the chat room. Um, Fred Zeidman, who I know for a long time, I know is from Houston, might have a question. Yes. Uh, Dave, first of all, uh, first of all, Larry, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. Dave, to try and tell you how small the world is, Larry and I have known each other forever, but Stan Caston and I were partners when we bought the Nationals. And uh, when Stan moved on to L.A., he asked me to join him, and I said, no, I was going to stick with the Nationals. So at any rate, uh, I'm still an owner of the Nationals. I emailed Nancy last night to let her know that you did not manage in the 2019 World Series. So that being said, uh, <laughs> all the conflict, by the way, uh, that I, I might have is settled economically, and I love, I love Stan. But can you tell me a little bit about, uh, and you said you might talk about this, uh, how aware y'all were of what the Astros were doing and how you think it affected uh affected the Dodgers uh, in the series. Is that a fair question? It, it, it is, Fred. And first of all, uh, first off, I, I want to commend you for surviving Stan Caston. That's a job well done in itself. So I, 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 a little, I a little intense, right? A little intense. I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out and get through it. Just kidding. Um, it's a very fair question. He said, we're going to go by the Dodgers. And I said, let me tell you the difference, Stan. You get a free ride and I got to write a check. You're going to pay two <laughs> Hirschfield, I don't know if Larry was going to finance that one for me, but that might be a little out of my league. So. That's fair. That's fair. Well, I think to give everybody a little backdrop, in baseball, there is uh, sign stealing, and there's a right way to do sign stealing as far as on the field, trying to figure out what teams are doing. And it was reported and proved true that the Astros were using technology to steal signs throughout the regular season and in the World Series against us, the Dodgers, uh, in 2017. So anyone that that knows the sport, play the sport, knows that if you have definitive, uh, you know, uh, if you have information on signs, uh, pitches, and, and what pitches are doing, it gives you a huge advantage. And so that kind of goes past the line of the etiquette part. And so uh, ultimately, 
the Astros won the World Series and there were some suspensions and things that were kind of handed to them. Uh, no players were reprimanded because they needed the information. And I think for me and the organization, it was tough because I think for me, scrutiny that I received um, was at an all-time high and that's part of the job. Um, and, and the world would have looked different had we won the World Series. But I think that for me and, and the spirit of looking forward, there's nothing that can change, uh, you know, what happened in 2017. So um, th that's the thing I'm, I'm proud about our ball club is we've won more baseball games than any team in the four years that I managed the club. Um, so a lot of the media and certain fans deem it as unsuccessful because we haven't uh, won the World Series in the last four years. But uh, when you're part of the market of the Dodgers, that's part of uh, what you sign up for. But I think we've doing a lot of successful things our organization. But yeah, I had some good friends over there, and uh, we still kind of our relationship. I think a little bit, Fred, has become a little bit more personal um, than professional. So, right or wrong? Uh, Alan Moon has a question. Then Ted Roth. Uh, what do you think is the minimum number of games that would need to be to have a reasonable season? Alan, I, I think that that's uh, been thrown out there a lot. And, and for me, I just think that whatever number both sides can, uh, can agree upon uh, is sufficient for me. Uh, I expect there to be an expanded playoff situation. In baseball, the great thing about baseball is because ultimately it's a marathon and the best team, the depth usually prevails through the regular season. And to win 11 games in October is, is certainly a, a toss of a coin. Uh, Bruce Bochy is going to be on with us uh, hopefully soon. He's won three championships and his teams have played well. Uh, but I think for me, and, and this is something I really believe in how you frame things. And I, I think that there's always cynicism in our world and how you can frame it as it's not enough of a season. It's not um, 162 games. It's not what we're used to. And I'd argue that because of those reasons, it's going to make it that much more difficult to ultimately be a champion and unprecedented times um, being away from each other, being with families, uh, sequestered, quarantined, um, no certainty on when we start a sprint of baseball, 57 games, 50 to 60 games, I'm guessing. Um, and to ultimately get through this and, and stay together. I'm not going to say it's more valuable than the 162 game, eight month uh, marathon. But I do think that there's a lot to be said. And I think that right now, for me, as being a being bullish, obviously, for the game of baseball, um, it's an opportunity for us to kind of gain market share back from football, basketball, and be the only show in town. So I'm trying to get on these guys to make something happen and, and come to some consensus. Hey, Ted, go ahead. Hi, uh, Doc. Thanks for, uh, thanks for, for doing this today. There was a uh, an article by Mike Lupica in today's uh, uh, MLB on their website that was talking about you and some of the things that uh, that you had been through. And one of the what you said about the need to listen, I thought was uh, was very appropriate. Can you maybe elaborate a little more on that and what we all need to do? Uh, to, to help just by, by simply listening to, uh, to, to all sides. Thank you, Ted. And, and I'll tell you this, is that, you know, we're all successful in our own rights and, and all leaders in our own rights. But uh, 
a good mentor of mine, and, and I'll get to your question real quick, is he, he told me, uh, what got you here won't get you there. And it was one of those things of, I was always stubborn. Um, if you cross me, I held grudges and I didn't forgive. Uh, I wasn't a good listener. I had all the answers. Um, and I think that when you want to lead people the right way, it's like he told me all those things that I did to get me through a 10 year baseball career and take care of my family are things that I'm going to, are going to be deterrents going forward in the sense of you got to listen to your players and your staff. Um, and that's what the best leaders do. Um, and you can't be stubborn when I think a guy is not playing up to his potential or says something wrong in the media. And I can't take it personal like I used to, um, because again, it's not about me. And when you're managing a team like the Dodgers, there are so many times where people have a tendency to take certain things personal and I can no longer do that. And understanding that every player needs to be managed differently. So now it gets me to, you know, the article that Mike Lupica uh, wrote today that I, I have a lot of respect for him. And I think it's something for me, Ted, that I have to make a conscious effort to, to listen. And I think that with my family in particular, my kids, and I, I check boxes by trying to say I'm here and listening, but I'm not present. Um, and I think that for our country, it's, uh, I think that people hear people and have heard people for, for, for centuries, uh, you know, more so decades. Uh, but I don't think that they've really heard them. And, and I think, and I say that, and I talked about this example where, you know, if there's a, there's fires in Australia, tsunamis in the, in the, in the Middle East or, or in the Southeast in Asia, um, you know, there's things that happen in, in our world that, um, unless you can really relate to it, it really doesn't resonate. And I think it's one of those things that you say how sad it is. And until it happens to someone close to you, then it kind of really hits home. And I think that it took a murder, basically a murder on captured on video for people to realize the depth of this that has happened for, for, for decades. And, um, I think that right now, white America, and this is, again, I, my wife is, is a Caucasian and it's not a, it, it is a white or black thing, but it's not a white or black thing. It's just more of, um, white America has to, in my opinion, just has to show empathy and listen and understand that there's no way that could have been any white American in George Floyd's place. I think that when you can kind of look at it from that lens saying that you can have as much empathy as you can, but that's my son right now is lighter than I am. So I know that that still could have been my son, but my nephew could have been that man or a couple of our players could have been that man. My father could have been that man. And so I think that really to try to place yourself in that situation, obviously as hard as it is, I just think right now it's a time for all of us to kind of listen and it's no indictment on anybody else, but a challenge to all of us to kind of, Really listen, and like I said, uh, Ted, in the article, some of you guys might have read it, some of you not. I just think that we've just done our generation, um, this one and prior, the one, the younger generation, a disservice. And you know, here we are in power, a position of leadership, and you know, we're trying to tell the younger generation how to do things, and we've kind of left them in a tough spot. So um, I, I'm still hopeful, and, and I expect things to change. John Martin. 
Hi, Dave. Thanks for joining us today. Um, kind of a two-part question. Um, the first part is really uh, what, what your current take is on how you, uh, whether you think there will be resolution between the players and the owners to allow whatever sort of truncated season uh, might, might be able to be played. Uh, but secondly, and this kind of plays into that, I think, uh, is, you know, what is your take on the relationship between owners and the players under the current administration compared to what it's been under prior uh, administrations in the, uh, in the commissioner's office and amongst the owners? Man, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, all right, I'm going to be as candid as I can. Um, I think there is uh, as little trust as there has been uh, between the players and the owners uh, in this current day, um, which is very unfortunate. Um, I, I don't think that there's a lot of misinformation. I don't think that the current player is as educated on past uh, relations, uh, labor relations. Um, I hope that, you know, there's compromise that needs to be, that needs to be had to make a deal. Um, but again, I just think it boils down to the lack, very lack of trust. But with that said, I do think that uh, a deal is going to get done. It'll be a truncated season. Um, a lot of it is contingent upon, I think that the, the worst situation is to start baseball and to have the pandemic revisit itself, show itself again throughout baseball, and there'll be a stoppage. And, and that's where we've already lost billions of dollars in the industry, which would double if that were to happen. So I think that to hedge that, the owners need some kind of uh, uh, you know, assurance that you know, if, if we do get this thing done and we do play, uh, play the season, I think that it'll be the pro rata salaries um, throughout and, and some shared revenue in the postseason. And I think ultimately that's going to come through. The players want more games. The owners want less amount of games because uh, we're not going to play through September as far as the regular season because the NFL and, and TV is already kind of set with content. Um, so I think for me, it'll we'll kind of settle on somewhere between 50 and 60 games. But as far as the, the ultimate big thing is a trust, I just don't see that kind of resolving itself. And, and the agreement is going to be up after 21. The, the collective bargaining agreement. So you're talking about, you know, multi-billions of dollars in, in the industry that they got to figure it out. So um, I'm so, I'm so hopeful. Thanks. Uh, Stephen Ogilvie. Thank you, Dave. Uh, we at um, No Labels are always looking for consensus builders. We're always looking for, easy solutions uh, are difficult solutions that require consensus in a bipartisan way. And I am an Astros fan. I will admit that. Uh, but I will also uh, say as we are entering this 2020 season of looking to decide how we are going to deal with presidential election. Question is, is Vin Scully available? <laughs> You know what? I'll tell you, Stephen. I wish he were, um, but he's not. Uh, man, I could listen to him talk and tell stories, and he'd be great to talk about our country and lead our country. But uh, I think that ship sailed. Uh, 
Um, but I will say this is um, I just applaud, you know, what you guys are doing. And it's interesting where uh, in our industry, I can speak to our industry and, and where a lot of it is driven, should be driven by principles and beliefs and values. But unfortunately, it gets muddled with politics and uh, potential backlash. And I think that we can all see what's going on in our country. And um, I love the idea of betting on people. Um, and it, it just it just amazes me that no labels, it took 2010 for no labels to come to pass where, you know, how much this world has evolved um, in so many ways, but to see life in black and white uh, on the political side is just for me, I'm just beside myself and uh, where we can't kind of find some middle ground, uh, you know, with morals, values, and really what our country was intended to stand for, uh, how we're still not there in 2020, uh, amazing. We will get there. We're going to get there. Yes, sir. Uh, Eleanor Bigelow, please. Oh, hi. Um, I had the same question as John Roberts, and um, Dave answered that, but I will ask a question. Um, who were your favorite baseball heroes when you were a kid? And thanks for talking to us today. So, um, thank you, Eleanor. Uh, my my heroes were. Um, I grew up in San Diego. Uh, Tony Gwynn was a hero of mine, and he ultimately <laughs> became a friend of mine. And he was a guy that just did things the right way and played the game that he loved. Loved to talk about his craft, his skill. Um, was a teacher. And he ultimately became a friend and um, passed away with cancer. Uh, Ricky Henderson is a guy who's not a little different player, uh, self-promoter, but what a tremendous athlete. And uh, I was a kind of a base dealer type guy. And I kind of resonated, uh, identified with uh, Ricky Henderson. And I don't, I'm not a big self-promotion guy, but he was fun for the game. And I think that the game is about the fans. And Ricky in the 80s um, really understood kind of how to market himself and beyond late 80s, early 90s. Um, I've heard stories through people that I love that played with Jackie, Jackie Robinson and, and so Don Newcomb, the late Don Newcomb. So to know what Jackie's story is and to know his wife and his daughter and his family, to see what he stood for. Um, certainly you know goes at the top of my list but to be honest with you i i have just as many heroes outside of my industry than i as i do in and i'm still learning and the current player eleanor these guys are so dang talented and they're fun to watch um i just hope that they can continue to understand how things came to be and, and want to educate themselves because sure talent alone I think across the board and, and the big three, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, the talent is, is better than it's ever been. Glenn, you want to say anything? Yeah. Um, hey, Doc, it's Glenn. Um, originally, I was going to ask you about the, the, the trust issue. And I guess the, my only question about that is, does the shit have to hit the fan first? But uh, the, my other question would be, you know, we've seen, there's a lot less African-American presence in baseball, certainly than there was in, you know, in my youth. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a there's a lot of debate about the role of the athlete as a as a 
public force and what his voice should or shouldn't be. And as a manager, I'm sure you cringe a little bit every time you read a Twitter, a, you know, a tweet from one of your players. You know, you know, you counsel them to talk or not talk. You know, what is you've been on both sides. What what should the athlete do or not do? And then how do you deal with that as a manager? You know what, uh, Glenn, thanks for being on the call. And, and I think that it's interesting because now with social media, everyone you know, seems to have a platform and um, very reactionary. Um, sometimes it's meant the right way, but there, it's, there's always something that you can spin and it's construed the wrong way. My players are just as guilty. Um, I haven't had a meeting about kind of, we have overall meetings as far as organization about how to handle things and how to kind of voice your opinion. Um, and we do a good job of kind of trying to filter it and, and take things down, which we've done before. Uh, but sometimes obviously there's no damage has already been done. Um, I'll tell you this, Glenn, um, biracial, being biracial, my dad served our country for 30 years as a, as a Marine, um, grew up in Houston, one of eight. Uh, he was the uh, only black kid in his high school, uh, only one black man in his battalion. Uh, my wife is from Okinawa, Japan, by the way, is voted one of the healthiest places in the world. So they have 45 people over 100 years old. So that's something. Um, so I got good genetics. Um, but I think that I'll tell you this is that playing with black players and coaching black players, it's sad to me when, and I've witnesses when a black player speaks up about the unjust way they've been treated, they're kind of looked like as troublemakers, clubhouse lawyers, militant, just angry black men. And these are some of the smartest guys that I've ever been around. And it's really unfortunate to say the least. Um, so I think that I've told the players that I've talked to, specifically the, uh, the white American players, I think that even if your heart is in the right place, I just encourage them to not use your platform just to support the Black Lives Matter. But I think anything further than that, we just need to all listen. Um, so that's kind of the part of it for my players in the organization. Um, it, it's, it's hard because I've talked to some players where now, you know, our players and some staff have kind of taken this, oh, now everybody's reaching out to me and, and wanting to hear my thoughts and wanting to talk to the organization. Um, and, you know, I talked to white America, you know, and it's damned if I do, damned if I don't. And, and I think that that's where voices are being heard. And we still got to keep that heart and mind open, uh, in my opinion. As far as Glenn, earlier on, I think that right now, in, in light of what's going on, I think that we're going to get a deal done. But as far as the negotiation for 21, that might be a little bit tougher uh, to get done. So I got a bunch of questions. I would note that Todd Bowley, one of the owners of the Dodgers, is on. So, Todd, if it, anything you want to say to anything? Todd, great. Hey, Doc. How you doing? Hey, Todd. How are you? I like your hat. Well, you know, I figured it was good to represent today. Yeah, we got too many Astro fans on this call. <laughs> yeah, I've been cringing. <laughs> All right. So I think uh, Murray Levin had the next question. Yeah, uh, Dave, thank you very, very much for sharing your thinking with us in such a uh, friendly and open manner. Uh, I have to admit that I'm a long-suffering Philadelphia Phillies fan, 
but uh, I'd like to ask you to share your thoughts on some of the radical proposals that are out there about changing the way baseball is played. For example, I recently heard of a proposal that every inning will start with the top of the batting order, and if it bats around, then the eighth and ninth batters will get a turn, but if it doesn't, uh, they won't. And it was compared to football, where they say you you watch the star quarterback on every offensive play. This way, you'll watch the top of the batting order. Or uh, changes like you can only make one pitching change in an inning or a seven-inning game. How do you feel about these uh, kind of, I'll call them radical proposals? Um, okay. I, 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 so here's the thing. Is I think that I've grown and I'm an old school baseball guy, but I've grown in realizing that baseball, and I've always realized this, that baseball is about the players uh, and, and the fans. And I do think the numbers and the, the fan base has changed um, and not necessarily for the better. Um, and so to keep the interest of fans, it's important for the industry to be open-minded. And I think that everything should be on the table um, I don't think that the idea of the best hitters top of the order starting every inning, I think that's a little too aggressive. I do think that no one cares to see extra innings. So to potentially put a guy on second base, and then if you want it to be the top of the order hit, I think that's fun. Um, even one of our guys, Justin Turner said, you know, at the end of regulation that we go nine, may play one inning, then there's going to be a home run derby. You pick three guys. You know what? If the players are for it, then so be it. I'm all for it. Um, the pitching changes, I think that sometimes fans throw things out there, but you have to look at the deeper part of it as far as poten potential injury risk. And that's something that people in the industry have to really be mindful of because these players are making a ton of money and they're we got to protect them as well. So, um, But, Murray, I love the idea of kind of throwing things out there because ultimately, as a fan, I'll tell you right now, Maria, I just can't sit and watch three and a half hour, four hour baseball game either from TV. So I can do it from the dugout and I play to win and no game can be too long for me. Uh, we did it in the World Series against the Red Sox. I did it when I was playing for the Red Sox against the Yankees. So when you're playing, coaching, it's all good. But I get it. So to keep the fans engaged. So I so something I proposed is I'm willing to wear a mic uh, this year and uh, get our players to wear a mic so they can see some of the conversations that I'm having with the pitching coach, uh, the bench coach, um, maybe a few trade secrets that uh, I'll kind of, you know, uh, throw out there. But I think that'll kind of engage fans a little bit more and give a little perspective. Tim Sloan, please. Oh, thanks, uh, Larry. Hey, Dave, first, I, I want to thank you. You signed our son's Andrews baseball when you were playing center field for the Dodgers. We're lifelong Dodgers fans. So thank you for all you're doing uh, for the team. And by the way, you were incredibly magnanimous at the beginning of this call and talking about how the Astros stole the World Series. <laughs> uh, but Dave, I, I was really interested in, in your description of how you changed from being a player to a manager and some of the leadership lessons learned. And, and, and I think sometimes we all learn from uh, really specific situations. What's the most difficult situation you've had as a manager from a, from a racial perspective and how did you deal with it? Um, from a manager perspective, 
you know what? I'll tell you this. This is um, honest. I think that I never, I've never had up to this point, not to my knowledge, any kind of run-ins or, or you know, dealings uh, personally as as a manager. I will say that once I became named manager of Los Angeles Dodgers, I felt a big, I don't want to say burden, but I felt a big weight that was put on. And I played for 10 years. I went to UCLA. Um, yeah, there's a coach that's a big league coach. But then once I was named manager, I, I really felt a responsibility kind of come upon me. And so you know, the question was any dealings with, with race. So I think in the context of my race, I felt a certain obligation to do things the right way, to bring awareness to Japanese Americans, African Americans, uh, minorities. And um, so I did feel that kind of responsibility. Um, you know, what's interesting is I've always kind of been a positive I feel myself as a leader, but I never really considered myself a radical and mm-hmm. um, and not that I'm, um, I would ever be radical. But I think that there's times like right now where I don't get political. You know, my faith is my faith and I don't push that upon players in the organization. But I think there's a time for leaders to step up and voice their thoughts with the platform. So um, this is as vocal as I've been. Um, and, you know, we have one of our owners, you know, Todd's on the on the call. And this is where it's like. And I know Todd as a personal friend. So I think that there's times where it's profession, but it's like there's also times where this is who I am. And so with respect to the Dodgers and, and the people that work for it and own the team, I still have to be myself and be true to who I am. So that's why I've, I've just chose to be more uh, vocal. And fortunately, I've had the support of the organization. Uh, Roger, I'm sorry, Roger Hudson. Good, good afternoon, Doc. Thank you for showing up. And despite all the great Houston fans and Dodger fans this <laughs> year that the Colorado Rockies were finally going to take it to our friends from the West, uh, very much appreciate it. Uh, we were looking forward to that, maybe in the abbreviated season. Actually, a two-part question, one part a little light, one part a little heavier. Coming to Coors Field and playing at elevation, I would love, do you see any difference? We always hear that there's a little bit of a an edge when you're playing in the uh, thin air and the high altitude. And I just didn't know if that was, if, if you actually witnessed that, then I'll give you the second part, which is a little more serious. Uh, okay. I like I like the easy one. I like the, uh, the layup, but uh, that was a good one. So going to Denver, playing at altitude is real. Um, the, the, what it does to the ball, the trajectory, the way the ball flies and carries the thin air, uh, the ballpark is considerably bigger as far as dimensions that, than any other ballpark that we play in. Uh, Arizona is just as, as close to that size. Um, the ball doesn't spin like we're used to at sea level. Uh, the grip for the pitcher, they don't have the feel, so then they don't have the command of the baseball that they do at sea level. And the other thing is that the body, uh, you get dehydrated, and so your body gets very sore. And so what we've done is that when we, when we go into L.A. to go beat up on your Rockies, Roger, uh, we make sure we try to give one of those guys a day off when we play the Rockies. Because not only going into Denver, but when we come out of Denver, there seem to be a lot of injuries that series that week right after. And so we're very mindful of that uh, with analytics, our, our training staff, the studies that they've done. 
Um, and, you know, but playing there as a visitor, it's a nightmare. And when we look at the schedule and there's four games going to Denver, because that can affect you for the next couple of weeks as far as how your pitching staff gets out of that series. Well, we'll look forward to welcoming you there. Um, the other part of the question, a little, little heavier side to it, but what we were talking about previously is do you feel there's a need for more African-American or Hispanic managers? And what needs to change in your mind, if you think that is true, that has to happen in order for that to occur? I, I do think that, um, I'll tell you this. I, I think that there should be more baseball guys um, in, in coaching and leadership positions. That's number one. Uh, number two, I absolutely believe, um, you know, Hispanic, Latin American, African American, there's many viable candidates. Um, and then it kind of is a challenge to the industry, uh, those hiring, those positions that can directly impact uh, those positions or roles. Um, so I, I think that I hope we see it more. But I will say this is that we're trying as Major League Baseball to get more African-Americans in the game because, to be quite frank, they're going to other sports. And, you know, most kids like to emulate people that look like them. And, you know, if you can look on any Major League Baseball team, there aren't many people that look like the inner city black kid. Um, you know. There's a lot of kids, you know, playing in the NBA on that hard floor that do. So, um, so that's one thing. And I know that the commissioner and I'm on the competition committee, we're trying to change some of the rules. Uh, I think earlier, maybe uh, Murray asked a question about the rules. And, and, and I think that one thing we're trying to do is uh, kind of get it around um, people that can run. And so the stolen base is going to be more prevalent. And it's not going to be about the home run because now the truth be told is a lot of the African-Americans that played in the eighties could really run, but now the stolen base, that part of the game is really um, irrelevant. And so there's things that they're doing with the pitchers, what they can, can't do. So then now it makes that player <laughs> that can run more, more of more value. Um, you know, the RBI thing. So we're just trying to get more players to be more dynamic in major league baseball. But again, I just think it's a classic case of people hire the people that look like them. Richard Davis. I'm uh, very impressed listening to you, but I will confess that um, I'm still going to be a New York Met fan. Uh, but my question goes back to I'm old enough to have spent a lot of time at the polo grounds. And we didn't have an enormous amount of money, but we could go to games. We could get we could get tickets. We could have the hot dog. I'm concerned that it's become so expensive to go to games uh, because of the economics. That the ticket prices are higher. It, when you get in there, the food is higher. Do you see that as a as a problem in terms of that the, the experience of being at the game? It's just becoming too expensive for too many Americans. Well, I, I would say that certainly the ticket prices are are very high. That's fair. But I, I, I can't 100% agree because if the TV viewership uh, was, was at, a, at a high or was continually to, continue to increase, I think that would 
solidify your point, but viewership and ratings are going down as well. So I think that that just speaks to, to the, to the people, the baseball fans or sports fans. So um, I, I, I do think that, yeah, if the economics, the, the prices, the, the price of a hot dog or a beer went down, yeah, you probably have some more butts in the stands. But I still think overall, people need are not watching baseball because as you were a young boy going to the polo grounds and and talking about Duke and all these different players. And, and Willie Mays, not Duke. Uh, Willie Mays, I'm sorry, <laughs> Willie Mays and all these guys. So it's like, you know, not Ebbets, right? Some polo grounds. So it's like when you're talking about these guys, you're 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 learning more. You're talking about the game. But the kids now aren't talking about games. And also, I'll tell you this, is that the game is also changed in the sense of players are now changing teams way more than they ever have. So to identify with Willie as a, as a giant, shoot, if Willie played for the Giants after six years, he would have been a free agent. He might have been playing for the Dodgers. You know, So the, 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 the landscape of baseball has also changed, too. So, uh, Lee Manfred. Uh, hi, Dave. Two questions. Um, one, do you think something like the uh, version of the Rooney rule works to advance uh, minority hires in baseball? And the more frivolous question being, how do you explain Clayton Kershaw in the postseason? <laughs> All right. All right. Um, let's talk about Clayton. Um He's one of the best pitches of our generation. Uh, he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, I think that if you look at the whole body of work, um, early in his career, he was one of very few starters that pitched on three days rest. And so for him to take the baseball for his club that he did and being pushed in games, a lot of the, the results came in the seventh inning and didn't get through the seventh inning. Um, so I think that the numbers overall ERA or performance is skewed because of the back end innings. Um, you know, it, I, I think for me, since I've had him, I'll say this. He was lights out against the Astros. And uh, I think his game four, game five, we had a three run lead, a four run lead. And it's interesting. The Buffalo Bills, as some of you guys might remember, the Buffalo Bills who lost four Super Bowls. And they kind of looked at as a failure in the NFL. You just never know if the Buffalo Bills would have won that first one. Could they have won three more? And I think that with Clayton, you look back now and say the Astros are cheating. And Altuve doesn't hit a slider or Bregman doesn't hit a slider down at his ankles for a home run. And that could have changed his legacy. And I don't know the weight that Clayton has on him being a superstar Hall of Famer that all this noise and stuff that he heard after 17, that has to kind of still bleed into his mind going forward into 18, into 19. Um, so I can't speak to every outing that he had in the postseason. I just know that this man cares more than anybody, and um, I'll still take him uh, with the baseball at any point in time. And, and, and even last year, I loved him in the spot, and um, he made a great pitch to uh, – to Rendon, it was at his ankles, and he had a homer. It was a ball, yeah. and um, then he left a bad pitch to uh, Soto, who hit it out. So it, it's the thing is, guys, that that's baseball. That's what frustrates me, keeps me up at night sometimes. But that's what I love about the game. Glenn, thank you. Hey, hey, Doc, Doc, on the on the affordability question, 
How big of an issue do you think it is with, with African-American youth that youth baseball has become a, a, you know, I hate to say it, you know, a rich man's game, you know, the travel ball and all. I mean, you know, it's, you talk about access, you know, you talk about access to, you know, education, you access to healthcare. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy to sound. It's access to the sport. That, that's that's wow. That, that's very thank you for bringing that point up, Glenn. And, and you couldn't be more right. You know, I think that when we all came up, we were playing Little League and, you know, you pay us a, a small fee and, and you play a couple games a week. And and now I call them they're the showcase player. And these are kids from eight, nine, ten years old that are playing on travel ball teams. They jump from team to team. It certainly lends itself to a better skilled player. Um, but not a dynamic player because they're not playing a bunch of different sports. And also, you're looking at the privilege that have opportunities to play. I was telling my wife the other day is we're paying a huge number to get my daughter, who's a sophomore, uh, uh, coming junior, to prepare for the SAT and ACT tests, where that's privilege. And so now you're talking about African-Americans, why we don't have them in the game, because the talent is there. But the desire, the opportunity to play baseball is no longer there because the college coaches, the scouts, everybody's watching these showcases and these travel ball games and teams. So that's very fair. And the question is, how do we change it? Um, you know, there's got to be, you know, opportunities. You talked about that Rooney rule um, earlier. It's just giving kids an opportunity and giving them scholarships to play Um you know, and I think that sometimes with, with coaches and managers, you've got to, like I said earlier, is just betting on good people. And, you know, whether it's a Latin American, Hispanic, or an African American leader of men, manager, coach, needs an opportunity. So, so before, before we uh, get to that closer, I just want to uh, ask Doc whether he wants to talk for a minute about uh, the wine business. <laughs> Most folks <laughs> know that beside, beside the, the Stellar baseball career. Uh, Doc also makes wine. Put a pitch in for his red stitch wine. It's great stuff. Anything you want to say about that? How do you no, find? No, you know, Larry. Thank you. I, I just, you know, what I needed some balance in my life, <laughs> and uh, so it's funny as I've ta after taking trips up to Napa when I was a ball player, uh, my wife noticed something different about me that I was present, and she she coined the term Napa Dave when I was up in Napa uh, because I was listening to conversations. I was engaging and I wasn't worried about what was happening or not happening in baseball. So I decided to, to start this venture and create a, a brand. And so our first release was 2007 and it was Cabernet from Napa. Another buddy of mine that played uh, uh, baseball, Rich Aurelia, the former giant and uh, hedge fund uh, money manager, John Mysick of Notre Dame. Irishmen, uh, us three and our wives kind of started this venture. And now we do Pinot Noir, we do Chardonnay. And so it, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, Glenn Doshay is on this call. Uh, you know, it's probably my number one uh, buyer. So um, I, I just love it. And the wines are all approachable. Um, I, I love the, the story of wine. I like when wine, good wines, you know, the aroma, the nose, the mid palate, um, the finish. Uh, I just love it when a wine is well made. Uh, it tells a story. And it's, it's allowed me to take trips all over the world and appreciate great food, great wine, and friends. So thank you, Larry. Hey, my pleasure. The wine's called Red Stitch. Bruce, are you on? I'm on, man. I apologize. I totally, totally messed this up. 
I don't know why I had my uh, times uh, wrong here. I was thinking uh, four o'clock our time here on the West Coast. So, uh, Larry, I apologize. Well, we have we have maybe uh, four or five minutes before we're going to probably go to a close. But we've talked about the pandemic in baseball. We talked a bit about the race issues going on and how baseball's impacted. Maybe you want to make a few comments, and we'll see what what time we have left. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I, I, you know, again, sorry, because I was looking forward to this and really, uh, and um, I tip my cap. Uh, I applaud what you guys do. Uh, you know, the fact that you use uh, collaboration and uh, you, you get together and, uh, and, uh, and find solutions. So that, that's a great thing. Uh, so briefly just wanted to thank y'all for, for what you do, but, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I just retired and, uh, Last year, uh, managing the Giants, uh, you know, was uh, my 25th year, and uh, um, just had a, a tremendous run. But uh, what what we're seeing now, is something that you know I had never seen. We I've been through six strikes. There's been eight uh, strikes or, or walkouts in baseball, and we haven't quite seen it like this. And I was managing the French team. I try to be fast here, and I'm I'm out of time. But it was called off at the same time they called off uh, Major League Baseball, and. Uh, and it's unfortunate uh, what we're going through. and uh, But, you know, this is a little bit different because it's more of a health concern than economics. Now it's becoming economics, as we all know, that uh, we're battling here a little bit to get baseball back on the field. And uh, hopefully it's going to ha uh, happen here soon. Dave is you know, closer to that than me. But obviously uh, with no fans, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's costing owners money. So, you know, they're trying to adjust. But. We probably could use your group to get these uh, two sides together to see if we can get an answer to this uh, and, and, and get baseball back because we need it. It's critical that we need it. And uh, uh, so uh, I'm pulling, you know, harder than anybody to get it going, although I wouldn't be considered an essential worker, so I wouldn't be in the clubhouse or anything. It's going to change. Baseball is going to be changed uh, for quite a while here on how they do things. I'm talking about the medical procedure, uh, yeah, even we're talking about having spring training in San Francisco, for example, and splitting the team or putting 20 guys in Sacramento for spring training. Some here, and uh, they're going to be tested three times a week. Uh, uh, they have an app on their phone. They're going to be tested on only four or five people in the training room, no kitchen. We moved our weight room in San Francisco out to center field. We're out in the garage, all these little things, even washing baseball. So, uh, and, and the coaches, the staff wearing masks, everybody does beside players. So it's going to be an adjustment for everybody. But that part, I think they had down. Now we just got to get the two sides to agree to where it's going to make sense to where we can get back to playing baseball. And, of course, they're, they're a little worried about the postseason. That's why they didn't want to go further than October. So hopefully uh, I didn't take too long there. Um, uh, something else you want me to comment on, Larry? Let me ask uh, Liz or Nancy, do we have time for a couple of questions or do you, uh, what do you all want to do? Yeah, I think it's time for a couple. Anybody have a question for Bruce? Hey, Bruce, it's uh, Tim Sloan. Uh, can you talk about the uh, Dodgers Giants rivalry? Yeah, yeah. Dave Roberts still on this? Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's going to listen. I'm here, Boach. I'm here. So don't talk bad about me. No, then I have to change what, you know, my narrative here, but. Uh, now we you know what it's it's quite the rivalry and uh Larry and Glenn will tell you when we go on this uh, uh our trip, I don't know if they told you about it, the outlaws and stuff, we go 
up there. Well, we get on each other quite a bit up there. So um, probably a little friendlier than it used to be. We're not hitting each other with bats or anything. But, uh, you know, I, I thought Bumgardner and uh, Puig, I, I want to get them out in the playground, let them just finish it, just let them go at it. Because every time he pitched, those two uh, were close to fighting. And uh, But it's, it's you know, it's right up there with the Yankees uh, in Boston. Uh, it's it just has so much history to it, and it's still there. And, uh, and you know, hey, it's easy to hate the Dodgers. You know, they're they're good. But uh, uh, you know, when I came up here to San Francisco, I knew about it in San Diego when I managed. But when I came to San Francisco, I'll tell you a quick story. Tommy uh, Tommy Lasorda and I were pretty good friends. You know, he put up with me when I managed San Diego. But we're in the winter meetings, and when I was named manager of the Giants. I hear this voice in uh, the lobby during the winter meetings, and it's packed. Uh, if you've ever been to winter meetings there, and uh, and Tommy just cussed me up and down. Bochy, you no good son of a bitch. You know that. Don't ever talk to me again. As soon as I took over the Giants, it was different, and that's the way it was, and that's the way it is now. And uh, you know, now we, you know, they caught us. Now we got to get back to trying to catch up to where they're at. Larry, I'd like to close, not close, ask one question to Bruce. Uh, real reason most of us came to this call, Bruce, today uh, was to hear Dave talk about uh, base stealers and you talk about the centrality of the catcher position that really runs a baseball game. Right, right. And, you know, I get asked a lot why, you know, uh, a lot of catchers become managers. And uh, and the reason being, I, I really believe it's just an easier transition because, in essence, that's what you're doing on the field. You're the general on the field. You're the one that sees everything. You got to get the signs from the manager. You have to know all the fundamentals, the bump plays, you know, the throwovers, uh, holding the runners. Again. You have to deal with 12 or 13 different personalities on that pitching staff. You know, it's not one size fits all. And, uh, you know, how, how to manage them through a game. And uh, all these uh, uh, variables help you, I think, become a manager. And, uh, um, you know, the other reason, we're probably not smart enough to do anything else. But, uh, um, but it's, it's to, to me, it's the most important position on the field. Because, uh, again, to me, it's pitching. And, and the catcher's running the – uh, pitching staff and the one if I look at one player that impacted our team more than anybody during our successful run is Buster Posey Now Buster was a great hitter a great bat and RBI uh, producer but uh, it was more his handling of the staff when he took over we were a different team on how he uh, runs a staff and uh, and so you know obviously I might be biased because I'm a catcher but uh, um you know, you don't win without a good catcher. It's not going to happen. He doesn't have to hit, but you got to have a good catcher back there who, who's a good receiver, blocker of balls, a, a thrower, but more importantly, a guy who can handle staff and call a ball game. I agree with you. Thank you very much. I think the Bochy. catcher should own union. Hey, Boach, it's Ted Roth. I've got uh, one question. You're talking way too much about the Giants. You need to talk a little bit about the Padres before we get done here. And uh, Doc mentioned when he was talking, uh, Tony Gwynn, and you had the, you know, you managed both he and uh, Trevor Hoffman, both in the, in the Hall of Fame. Talk a little bit about, about what it was like uh, for, for those two and any differences or similarities with the two. Yeah, I see, uh, Ted, good to see you again. I see a lot of similarities between the two. Uh, 
you know, Tony, I was fortunate. I was fortunate to play with them, uh, coach them and manage them. And, uh, and out of all the athletes I've ever managed, nobody made himself available to the fans, uh, cared about them. Uh, Tony was the guy, if he, he was always at the ballpark early. If somebody came by the dugout, he didn't know who they were. He, he would talk baseball with them. Uh, um, my family, uh, I had cousins that would come down. And they would, don't bother Tony. I would tell him, don't bother him. Next thing I know, he's holding court with my family. And they would come back uh, a month later. Uh, he would remember them. But uh, that's who he was. He just he loved the game, but he loved the fans. And, uh, and that's why he's so beloved there. And Trevor has so many of those qualities. Uh, they're just so well-grounded, and uh, Trevor is the same way. He, you know, he, he realizes, hey, there's no baseball without fans. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're the ones that drive this game. And so, you know, sure, they have great talent, but more than that, it's their character and, uh, and being just great ambassadors to the game. So that's where they're similar. And I was fortunate. Probably wouldn't manage as long as I managed without those two. I have to look at those two. And here I have one of the best closers in the game for years. And those are the guys that make you look smart in that bullpen. And then, of course, one of the best hitters. And uh, Tony, I have one, uh, one more thing about Tony. Back uh, L. Jack Murphy, when I first started managing in 95, that was coming off that strike year. I was a little concerned about, you know, if I've lost credibility with the players. You know, I was lucky I knew some of them, but I really knew Tony. And Tony's locker was right beside my uh, office. And he came in and he says, listen, I got your back. You know, I'll make sure these guys, uh, they know what you're doing. And, uh, you know, because of what, you know, what happened with the strike and the replacement players. And uh, so he really helped me in the you know, first couple of months just getting established and, and saying, hey, Boach knows what he's doing, you know, and so I'll, I'll never uh, forget that, uh, him coming in the office and telling me that. All right, folks, so I'm going to hand it over to Bill. I just want to thank both both Doc and Boach for joining us, and I want to thank Glenn again for, for introducing me to both of them. And, Bill, you want to close this out? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, uh, this, this call is an unbelievable thrill for me. Uh, I was born in the Brooklyn Navy Yard just a few months after the end of the Second World War, uh, while my father, a naval officer, was on the island uh, that Dave Roberts' wife hails from. Uh, and I just want to say, uh, you know, we've talked about the Giants-Dodgers rivalry. Everybody knows about the most important home run that was ever hit. Uh, but I want to take a minute to recall the most important catch that was ever made. Sixth inning, seventh game, 1955 World Series, two on, Barra at the plate, hits a shot to left field, sure double, but Sandy Amaros caught it and doubled up Gil McDougal at first base with a fantastic relay throw to Pee Wee Reese which ought to be talked about as much as the catch. Uh, and, you know, that for me is just, you know, an unforgettable baseball moment, but baseball is full of unforgettable moments like that. And, uh, you know, it's, I'd say it's the game more filled with memories than any other sport uh, and more filled with intergenerational transmission of love of the game than any other, any other sport. One more thing about baseball. You know, I'm not the first person to say that it's a microcosm of life. 
really is. And right now, what's going on in baseball is a microcosm of what's going on in America as a whole. You have two sides that can't get together. And when two sides that have to get together don't get together, everyone loses. The case of baseball, it's the fans. And in the case of the country, it's the American people. Right. And, you know, no labels is dedicated to the proposition uh, that we ought to try to replace situations where we all lose with situations in which we all win. Uh, that's why we're in business. Uh, and uh, and the problem is that right now there appear to be no mediators in baseball that anyone would accept. And I can assure you that in American politics, there are no mediators that will be universally acceptable. It's just the two contenders in the room together, and everything depends on what they do in that room. No Labels has created rooms where people not only get together, they learn to trust each other, they learn to work together, and for the benefit, not just of themselves, but for the American people as a whole. Uh, and the people on this call are making possible the building of those rooms. And good things are happening and good things are gonna to continue to happen uh, with their continued support. Uh, and I just hope that uh, what we've been able to do a little bit of in politics in recent years spills over into baseball uh, and you get this situation resolved so that we can have a damn season, you know, Otherwise, you're going to have everybody on this call is going to be really unhappy, and it won't work to the long-term well-being of baseball either. So, gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Uh, as I said, it's been a learning experience, but also, I think, a thrill for so many lifelong fans on this call. Well, it looks like the shortened 2020 baseball season will be more of a sprint than the usual 162-game marathon. It took a lot of contentious negotiations between players and owners to even get to this point, and Dave Roberts saw parallels between the polarized debates in Washington. Both Roberts and Bochy are world-class managers, but suddenly they need to manage a lot more than baseball, including a new discussion around racial justice that will require a lot of listening and understanding. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.